So, law and economics. Yeah, quite a topic. I don't know. Is there much to talk about? Maybe we just... (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's probably the most popular, the most successful, the most uh, sweeping set of uh, changes in law over the last 40 years are, are really all about the startlingly significant success of that movement. Yeah. That, that perspective. And, and, you know, the, it, it's funny because when you go back and you read early 20th century legal realists and you read the people to whom they're responding, there is a lot more economic sophistication there than, than you might suspect. Cause I, I think the, you know, there, there is a narrative that law and economics, especially the Chicago school, but also the Yale school, you know, kind of a left and right yin yang uh, sure. approach to it has kind of taken the legal world by storm. And you see things in briefs these days that you wouldn't have seen in the formalist age or, or even the pre law and econ age. And there's, there is some truth to that, right? I mean, you, you see now direct reference to efficiency and to incentives and, and talking about policy in terms of incentives, maybe in more direct ways than you would have a long time ago. But when you actually go back and read some of these earlier writers, there's, Maybe we haven't gotten quite as sophisticated as we think we have, but well, you know, the as you know, one of the uh, fields I spend a fair bit of time on is antitrust law, and I just think it's very hard to overstate how much the field of antitrust uh, analysis and antitrust law has been transformed since the late 1960s, early 1970s. It's entirely a product, yeah, of the triumph of very extensive uh, consideration on law and economic grounds. And we can talk about why antitrust in particular is a, was a fertile area Indeed. to be for this transformation to occur. But, you know, imagine you're an undergraduate now, Joe. Yeah. You have, um, you've just been through a unit on utilitarianism mm-hmm. and deontology. You know, we've got this idea that, um, that there is a branch of figuring out what's good that the law uses, which is concerned with consequences and in particular Mm -hmm. concerned with how well off people are made in some global sense. Mm -hmm. Um, this, these, you know, 10 or 11 pages I put together and then the cases after to try to illustrate some of this, it's a bit of a whirlwind through some pretty serious topics that kind of give, put flesh on the bones of that idea of what it means. Of consequentialism. Yeah. Of what it means for people to be better off in a social sense. When I teach this to law students, it's not exactly a laundry list, but there's a list of kind of key ideas in law and economics that I can illustrate. And I think some of those key ideas, I mean, I think I get most of them out here in these 10 or 11 pages with some, not to, you know, not to make a pun, but with some efficiency here. That wouldn't even be a pun, would it? It would just be a, an irony. Hmm. Mm. I don't know. Uh, And those, so I think the big concept here is efficiency, rational actor transaction costs, incentives, externalities, and then Cosian ideas. Mm-hmm. I think the stuff that probably strikes many as the least familiar, and it turns out to be enormously important, is uh, this issue of transaction costs. Uh, Which is where I end up. You know, it ends up, the, you know, that's the, yes. the goal is to be familiar with so-called transaction cost economics. And you think this is either the least intuitive or, or it takes the longest to get to or Oh, what? I don't know that it's, I don't know that either of those is true. Uh, I think it's, uh, I think once you read about it, it, it makes sense. 
and uh, you you can continue to be surprised by it because the depth of the insight it, it takes time to unfold and appreciate. That, uh, I mean, I think the 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 sort of the rational actor idea mm -hmm. uh, is is pretty familiar in the culture. I think the notion of weighing costs and benefits, as we talked about with consequentialism, I think that's a fairly comfortable and familiar thing for people to talk about and think about. Right. Uh, and I think even adding some rigor by thinking about uh, transactions or other events and asking about how many people are made better off, how many are made worse off, is every is at least one person made better off, is no one made worse off, or in the Calder-Hicks sense, do the winners win more than the losers lose? These all seem like a f fairly straightforward, I think, right? But but when you start to dig into coasts and you appreciate questions like, who might I want to make responsible so that as events unfold, taking into account things like the difficulty of assessing the value to attach to one of the options, is it harder than attaching value to the other option? realizing someone's going to get disappointed here, <laughs> someone's yeah. going to get benefited here. Um, once you start to think through those things and you, and you begin to appreciate that the interactions themselves are a source of cost, mm -hmm. and they might be one of the bigger sources of cost, and that given that law is a system for managing social relationships and cooperation and conditions of scarcity and disagreement, Mm -hmm. You might occur to you, oh my gosh, I think I'm talking about one of the most important features right. of, of the entire arrangement. And escaping cost, escape is to escape conflict in a way, right? To escape cost or to, or to uh, find yourself being able to take advantage of a mutual benefit involves, and, and we'll come back to this in, in more detail, overcoming a certain social friction, right? And that friction is what transaction cost is. Like we've, we've come together... I'm doing one project, you're doing some other projects, and these can't both happen at the same time. You know, maybe I'm breathing clean air and you're wanting to do something that pollutes, or maybe you're, right. you're, you're operating a glass factory and I'm operating a pulverizing factory, right? And these two things can't really go together at the same time. Right. But aligning our projects in a way, like, means that you and I will come together and somehow work this out. Like, maybe one of us will move or we'll operate at different times. We, we're somehow right. going to have to work this out to eliminate or minimize this social cost and in the world of uh in the world in which we actually inhabit and in the world where we're trying to reach arrangements where the gains outweigh the losses right one of the losses is having to work through it all right that's one of the sources of cost uh and so it ha it's it has a somewhat recursive quality mm-hmm and that's why I think it's a little harder to grapple with, might be a little less familiar. Very important. And, but it's also this, this, this friction, which is what, you know, that's, that's what transaction costs are. This, what transaction costs are this friction that, that stops us from aligning, right? I mean, it, or at least makes it more difficult. You have to put more energy in to overcome yes. this friction. And, uh, um, but once you realize it's there, once you realize that it's the thing that's stopping this rational behavior from happening, a lot about the world becomes a little bit clearer, mm -hmm. right? Now, and also I, when you appreciate that, so much of it is about finding out information. Uh, one of the, one of the, I think one of the big 
transaction costs, it's, or at least it's very prominent in the, in the stuff I've worked on over the years and thought about over the years is, is the cost of generating information that you need to make decisions. That is part of, if you look at any sort of textbook that laundry list of transaction costs, mm-hmm. right? Finding people, bargaining with people, monitoring your bargain, right? A lot of this is about information. Yeah. And, and developing it and, and getting more of it as things proceed. And, uh, and that's, I think, turns out to have some intriguing consequences as well. Now for, for today, we're going to, we're going to bracket this other conversation about, well, what about the fact that even if people have the right information and even if they can bargain, they do so irrationally Mm. or they're, you know, trapped in a regime where they can't like realize rational preferences for some reason. That's going to be the next reading. Yeah. So we're going to put that to one side. Cool. And just talk about this source of, of friction where, you know, like if I knew all these things, I could make a good deal, but I don't know all these things and you don't know things and we don't know how much our, each of us is willing to pay or willing right. to offer. Like all these things are a problem and are, and are blocking us. And the cost of getting to the other side of those problems could far exceed the gains from trade. That's right. Which means the trade's not going to happen. Yeah. So we'll talk about that in a moment. I, I want to start though. All right. So <laughs> I think it's good that we kind of backed into this topic in a way, because, you know, a lot of people who haven't gone to law school at all, or even some people who just started law school, you know, I think I, they, they may think to themselves, you know, I, I thought I came here to learn how to argue about what the law is. And like, you're going to tell me like, like there's this uh, bit of law, which has, you know, no cruel and unusual punishments. And what I'm going to learn is how to rhetorically to argue that this is cruel or this is unusual and to cite cases and do this and that. Um, but I think you very quickly learned that a lot of law turns on, well, you know, maybe the, the law itself refers to some concept of reasonableness or to, a, 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 or to a concept of, um, uh, of doing what is optimal. I mean, you can have statutes that refer to these things, sure. regulate in the public interest, uh, yeah. that, that specifically call for various actors in the system to try to create good consequences. Yeah. And sometimes they put some meat on the bones as to what those good consequences might be. Um, and, and sometimes they, they don't, you know, there, there are famously some laws which leave it up to agencies to regulate in the public interest. I mean, you know, very broad grants of authority right. where you have to consider what these things are. And if you're a legislator, of course, you, you know, the sky's the limit, but for constitutional limits, mm-hmm. right. And you can, you, you can try, you'll be tasked with figuring out like what is the best answer for these uh, for my constituents, for uh, the United States, for my particular state. I mean, you have, so, so we're this, this kind of, uh, this enterprise of being consequentialist, if that's what we're going to do, is front and center in doing the law. And so one way to see law and economics is as an effort to try to realize this consequentialist enterprise in a way which is rational and and has a kind of a common framework and about which we can, you know, where we can add in more assumptions over time and we can refine it. In other words, to make it more of a science, um, query how successful that yeah, is. Yeah, bring some analytical rigor to it that it might not otherwise have. You could generate some predictions. You could find out if those things are true or not true. If they're not true, you could ask yourself why. You know, yeah, it's, conver- it's very generative in that sense. So I start with the rational actor model in the readings because I think that is the fundamental device that turns what would otherwise be an unguided consequentialist enterprise into just people saying, I think this is going to happen. I think this is going to happen. Well, <laughs> w- w- what is it that gives rigor to predictions of the future? And, and it has to be some assumptions. 
some assumptions that right. you just make, and you and and you can argue about whether they're correct or not through observation, and yeah. you can. But once you have those assumptions, then what you do is engage in something which looks more like logic, right? Um, and so the the rational actor model is it's kind of a you can look at it this way um, that if we assume that everybody is a decision making machine in the same way, then if you want to think about what the consequences of something are. You just have to think about what that one person would do, and then you can extrapolate, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, if I want to know how will society, which, with its millions of people, respond to a change in interest rates or a change in the tax rate or a regulation of businesses, if you assume that all of these people are decision-making machines in basically the same way, then all you have to do is think about one of these machines and extrapolate to the rest of society, right? So if you know that the, the people that you're regulating are always going to trade something they have for something better, right, that they value more whenever yep. that opportunity is present, then you can make kind of mechanical predictions about exactly how people respond to incentives. Will they sell their homes? Will they buy this business? Will they trade leisure for work? Will they do this? Will they do that? Well, you don't have to be that person to answer the question. Because you have rational man, right? Rational man is the, is, is the, is the, uh, I don't want to say superhero, although you might say it's super, you might call rational man a superhero because it's a rather heroic assumption that people behave in this way. Uh, but that is the, I, I don't know if I'm, if, if I'm making sense here, maybe I made more sense uh, writing it down, but, but the key is to replace the, the, you know, otherworldly complexity of the human brain with a simple decision-making machine that you can then extrapolate to large groupings of people. Yeah. And without that, you don't have any way of reasoning about consequences. Yeah, by using that sort of, sort of simplifying assumptions and about preferences and the desire to get as many of them met at as low a cost as possible, because that is the way you get as much of them as you can. Right. Uh, well... The, the, what is the old saying? I mean, you know, the proof of the pudding's in the tasting of it. I mean, you've got to see what does it get you to say, okay, let's make that set of simplifying assumptions. Let's see what it helps us think about what may occur and let's watch things happen. Um, or, or slightly differently, but only slightly differently, let's go back and look at the historical record and see some changes that occurred and ask ourselves what might we think the change the consequence of those changes were that this model would suggest is that what happened mm-hmm. um or did something quite different happen as a way to be, again begin to say okay is this do is this doing is i'm gaining some benefit some work from this model right um because if it winds up not helping you at all don't do it and you'll find some domains where the rational actor assumption uh, it, it does model the participants very, very well. You know, some, some sophisticated businesses in in a certain community of sophisticated businesses engaging in commercial transactions may, you might expect those entities to in, to transact whenever right. it's to their individual benefit and to know those preferences well and to invest smartly in gathering information and, and right. to try to do things to minimize transaction costs. Like it may model well in that circumstance. It may not model the interactions of a family particularly well. Where people, where people's preferences are really complicated, and there's not a really good way to to say mm-hmm. exactly what they are. Although that said, there are plenty of law and economics approaches to 
you know, everything, uh, including families. You just have to like right. postulate their preferences differently, which is part, I think, of what has made the Chicago School of Law and Economics, which is a, you know, takes law and it takes the rational actor model with some modifying assumptions here and there for as much as it's worth. It is such a simplifying assumption that using it, you can reason your way to making predictions and suggesting things about almost every aspect of human behavior and, and human group, uh, the interaction within human groups, right. which is why, you know, Richard Posner, famous Seventh Circuit judge, great writer, brilliant thinker, has written on ever. Is there anything he hasn't written on? No. Not, well, <laughs> given that this recording will exist for some time, no. <laughs> I mean, he's written on like human sexuality even, right? Oh, oh, yeah, that yeah. was years. That was twenty years ago. Yeah, yeah. And, and so it's it's basically everything. Yeah, and and it's a model. It's a way of thinking about the world, which generates all kinds of interesting ideas. Now, whether they're right or not is a matter of like data gathering. It's a matter of uh, of of fitting your your model of human behavior to the actual humans that you're studying. But but there it is. Now, one important uh, addition I would make, I guess, to what you wrote um, that has occurred to me since reading it is that. Uh, and it's important. I think it's an important thing to remind folks about who who are newer to this way of of uh, thinking about things and incentives and how they might play out. Um, the the model and the approach doesn't assume that everyone's going to be affected equally. You just talked about generalizing using a a model of a single being and then right. sort of projecting that over many beings, right? right. One one way to do that in a way that's a that's a, that's a little bit more um, true to what we observe about actual people is, uh, and you'll hear this phrase a lot in in economics and therefore in law and economics is a quote at the margin, right? Or, or affecting the marginal person or the marginal decision, right? So there's a which is simply a way of saying that um, in in the area between people who fully embrace a thing and people who fully reject a thing. There's this sort of gray zone where you're crossing over from one group to the other. Mm -hmm. And that's where a lot of these incentives and rules and standards have their effect Mm -hmm. is there's a person who, if the rule had been a little different, would have gone to the left and they say, no, I'm going to go to the right. Yeah. Because you've made that change. So it's affecting people at that marginal decision point, the margin between opting one way and opting the other way. And you can think of uh, just markets and prices for this too. So think of the market for homes, like home sales, right? Uh, you can say that the fair market value of your home in, or the, just the market value of your home is X. But almost no one, at least in, in, in normal times, is a marginal seller, meaning that if someone offers them the market value for their home, they'll move, right? Otherwise, people would move, Right. But most people value their homes at any given time at greater than the market price. Most people are not marginal sellers. What defines the market price for a home is that zone at which buyers and sellers are meeting, where buyers are willing to offer more than sellers are demanding. And so by definition, the market price is set by kind of marginal buyers and marginal sellers, Mm, mm -hmm. right? And, uh, you know, you can think of this graphically. In fact, when I teach takings law, which we'll talk about regulatory takings at the end of this week, um, I, I have a little graph which shows all these dots of, of buyers and sellers. And there's, li- there's this little zone where the, where the people who have homes are willing to accept 
less than some of the buyers are willing to pay. And that zone defines what we call, that is just the market price. Right. It is the price at which transactions are occurring. But the, what you point out is, is key. And that's in general, n- people don't have the same preferences, right? right? That's not an assumption. Like when we say that the rational actor assumption isn't that everyone has rational preferences. There's no such thing. Preferences just are what they are. Yeah. Some people maybe wouldn't, even, wouldn't be willing to part with their home at any price, or at least at a very high price. Some people... Or, you know, just make me an offer. I want to get out of here, right? People have different preferences about that. And law and economics assumes nothing about why you would have right. such preferences, only that you act rationally upon those preferences. And and another example, just to give an additional illustration of the, the thinking of marginal, you know, marginal behavior or behavior at the margin is, you know, imagine the price of something that you enjoy on a regular basis, a cup of coffee, right? Mm-hmm. And imagine the price of coffee is rising, right? Right. Um, as that price rises, um, some people will say, individual people will say, yeah, that's too much. I don't want to pay that. Right. And so they'll shift to something else, to some alternative. Um, of course, there'll be some people who say, yeah, no, I'm fine with that. That's, I'm still willing to pay that. Right. right. Um, it, and uh, similarly, if it fell, right, there'd be some people who would come on board and say, ah, now mm-hmm. that's a price I'm willing to pay. I wasn't willing to pay what they were charging before. Now I'm willing to pay. Well, people who are already paying would buy right. more. Even So yeah. these are all people who are at, at, at a, any given price, there's this sort of the marginal buyer right. who's like, eh, I don't really <laughs> want it at that price. Or, oh, that's just at the limit. If it were a penny more, I wouldn't buy it. But, right. um, but it's okay, right? Um, so people, individuals are making decisions, as you say, preferences are what they are, and people are making decisions. And in the mass of all those people, you can identify some of these inflection points or these points of change, right? Well, it turns out every point is a point of change. Right. Because it brings some people on board and it drives some people away. Right. And, and people, the intensity of their participation in that market. So I may buy two cups of coffee, three cups, you know, that, sure. all of that all of that is at some marginal point in the way, right? It's just and the a, rational firm is going to charge that profit-maximizing price. So they will charge a price that is higher than some people are willing to pay precisely because, you know, I'll charge up to that point where my profits are maximized, and as soon as I raise that price a little bit more, then my profits will start to go down a little bit. And, and that's, that, that's my profit-maximizing point. It's a big and, deal in antitrust. But, in, true. Yeah. Um, so so the, all of this was simply by way of saying... Um, that that it if you if you're thinking to yourself oh this rational actor model doesn't seem to pertain to what I see in the world because th- it makes it sound as if there would be this switch where everything is on or everything is right. off and I don't think that's quite right yeah and 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 a key for that and this is something we'll come back again um, next time is that as we said. The model assumes nothing about what people's preferences are or why they have them. And, they, and, and it also assumes that those preferences are held irrespective of any law or, 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 um, or they're, they're kind of impervious to law and impervious to incentive, which is one of the critiques that people make, right? So, yes. so uh, the so-called endogeneity of preferences. Yeah, that, that in fact, law and society shape our preferences, and that is a kind of a hole in the theory. Mm. Um. Well, so if we're going to think about efficiency, though, you know, there are two big concepts of efficiency here, Pareto efficiency and Calder-Hicks efficiency. And in the book, I describe these as kind of bridges between rational actor model and prediction and normative judgments. 
right? It doesn't have to be that because you can just observe that some allocation is Pareto efficient or some change is Pareto efficient and some change is Calder-Hicks efficient. But the reason you would use those adjectives is to say something about the desirability of that change, right? I mean, that's usually why you would latch on to those. Sure. So a change is Pareto efficient when no one is made uh, worse off and at least one person is made better off by the change. So the way of thinking about this, and this was, I think, Coase's advantage, or at least one of the things that led Coase to, I think, some really interesting analysis in the problem of social cost, was the, the realization that kind of every action leads to a change in the state of the world, right? And if you're evaluating the consequences of action A or action B, you have to evaluate the total world created by action A against the total world created by action B. And that can include things like, all right, should we pass a law banning some harmful substance? Well, you might naively say, well, what I want to do is figure out how costly the harmful substance is and whether people enjoyed that substance. And I'm just going to kind of trade off those values and I'll make a decision that way. That's not right. Uh, What you need to do is you need to say, well, if I ban the harmful substance, this is what the world is going to look like. And if I don't, then this other thing is what the world is going to look like. And what the world looks like with a ban may involve a black market. It may involve lots of other harmful substitutes. It involves a whole set of behaviors that respond to right. uh, that, that ban. And, de- of course, declining to impose the ban is, is another world, right. which will have some pluses and minuses. Mm-hmm. And so to do a full comparison, you need to compare those two things fully. And the key to what we're talking about here, a kind of a normative law in economics, is that we are evaluating those two worlds by preference satisfaction. Right, we're kind of adding up the satisfaction of individual preferences and asking, first of all, was anyone disappointed? In which case, it would not be a Pareto efficient change. Right, which is but, the standard almost no one uses. Yeah, yeah almost no one uses. But uh, as a Calder Hicks matter, are the, do the do the benefits exceed the costs? Right, right. Um, do the winners win more than the losers lose? As you put it, if what we care about is efficiency, and let's just say Calder Hicks efficiency because Pareto efficiency may be hard to achieve uh, with any, as I mentioned in the text. If that's what we want to achieve, how does that ever not happen? Like, you know, if, if people are always doing things to satisfy their preferences and they're on the lookout for these things and other people are adjusting to satisfy their preferences, how do we ever not achieve? Like, how, how do we ever have this problem of inefficiency? Why does the law ever need to step in? Do you have a particular answer in mind? Well, this. Well, I mean, this is Coase's question in a way. It's the question presented by the Coase theorem. Like I, I've, I've stated this in a way that, um, that, that recognizes the, the kind of full extent of the unmitigated rational actor model, the, the rational actor model unimpeded by some truths about the world, which are captured by, by transaction costs, not to mention the stuff that we'll talk about next time, irrationality and other things. Um, so, so Coase's observation is, first, the kind of thing that we were talking about at the beginning of the conversation, right? That there, um, uh, that, that there is conflict in the world, right? That, that people do have different plans. And that's a, that source of conflict is the kind of thing that people are trying to adjust around. And the question is, why aren't they always successful in doing that? Yeah. Well, and, I, and so the, maybe this is the, uh, the sort of, um, the version of the Coase theorem that Coase himself denied ever having posited, which right. is, you know, world with zero transaction costs, um, there, there would never be a failure to attain Caldrick's efficiency. Right. 
So if something is worth more to me... Because everyone would just trade everything yeah, to right. the point that it needed to be traded to for the winners to win more than the losers to lose. Right. So if something is worth more to me than it is to you, in a frictionless world without transaction costs, I will get that thing. Right? If it's worth more to me than it is to you, I will simply offer you enough to part with it and I will come out ahead and you won't come out behind. Right? We will enter a, basically a Pareto efficient uh, uh, exchange and and everyone will be better off, right? And so it seems like through a series of Pareto efficient changes, we can overcome these conflicts. And that's, that's the essence of kind of the Coase theorem, right? That if you get two neighbors who, who, um, who happen to have property next to each other, one of them likes loud parties, the other one likes to sleep, you know, and, and uh, to sleep in and, and likes quiet or likes to go to bed early, I guess. The other one likes to go to bed early. Then one of them likes to do the thing that they like more than the other and they can compensate the other and say, hey, you know what? Knock off the loud parties. Well, I really like having loud parties. Okay, do you like loud parties more or do you like $1,000 more, right? right? Because it's worth $1,000 for me to sleep. And if the person says, take a hike, I, I value loud parties at $10,000, right? Uh, then no transaction occurs, but the efficient, the Calder-Hicks efficient thing is happening. Right. Right. And interestingly, in your hypothetical, uh, again, in a world with, uh, absolutely no transaction costs. Uh, it doesn't matter what the legal rule is about, for example, a, a prohibition on making noise after a certain hour. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter if that rule exists or not. In as your a, hypothetical. As a matter of tort law. Because we just talk know. to each other and we figure out, we find out you value your quiet at this level, I value my party at that level, and is there a deal to be made or not? And if there is, we do. Right. And if and, and if there is a law that says you can't have those loud parties at that time, you really want to have them at that time. I say, well, you, the law says you can't. I'm going to shut you down. Um, you know, I have, I'm going to file a nuisance suit to shut you down. And here's the amount of money that it would take for me not to do that. And we settle, right? right? So, and so exactly. this actually exactly is the Boomer against Atlantic cement case, right? True. This, this is uh, the factory which wants to operate and engages in pollution and, you know, necessarily causes some pollution. That pollution is settling in homes and causing damage to nearby neighbors and they don't want it to happen. So, and given the number of neighbors and the profitability of the company, it turns out that if you simply require the cement producer to pay all of those individuals a certain amount of money, um, and allow, it, it would have money left over for itself and could continue to operate. Okay, so if that's our assumption that the factory, the operation of the factory is the efficient result. It's not possible for the factory to operate and at the same time for everyone in the environment around it to be perfectly happy. Right. So, so given that, given the fact that operating makes some people unhappy for, for what sound like really good reasons, mm-hmm. like I'd be unhappy too. Um, so we've got these sort of the clash of these two things. The, f- the, the factory does something highly profitable, which m- meaning it does something that, that provides customers with something they value a lot, and that's why they're willing to pay for it, right? So that's the profitability of the production of that company. It takes these factors of production, produces cement, that's very valuable, great, lots of money. Um, well, okay, what are you going to do with it? Well, if there's enough money to pay everyone in the neighborhood who's upset about the operation of the factory and leave enough left over to cover the cost of production and even give a little bit of a return on investment to the people who run the factory, 
sounds like that's a desirable outcome where you're using preference satisfaction as your criterion. But why do they actually have to pay? I mean, so suppose we, suppose we knew for sure that the factory's operation was more valuable than the neighbors having uh, pollution-free air. Okay, suppose we just knew that as a, as a matter of fact, that they, that they could not pay enough to induce the factory not to operate. Okay? Okay. Um, as an efficiency matter, if we just said, well, the factory is entitled to operate and the neighbors have no, the na- the neighbors have no claim against the factory, and we conclude that because we're trying to design our nuisance law here, the nuisance tort, to be efficient. In other words, that's our guiding light. Our consequentialist guiding light is to design law to, to lead us to efficient results. Suppose that's what we're trying to do. Then a law which says that it is not a nuisance when a uh, when one party interferes in another, it does something which affects another party's property, right? It is not a nuisance if, if, that, if that effect is cost-justified. In other words, if the benefits to the person making the putative nuisance exceed the cost to the party who has suffered something. So that would still be efficient, right? The, the, I'm not sure because it, it seems to me that uh, making making sure that the overall social calculus of the production of the cement, right, includes the, it, it should go forward if it can co- cover the costs. Right. And the costs include the, the uh, unpleasantness to the neighbors. Right. And, and so, so it makes to, sense to, to make, make them, them make pay. that real is to make them pay for it. Well, if we make them pay for it, that's a way of testing whether the benefits to them exceed the cost to the neighbors. If we knew for sure, though, that the benefits exceeded the costs, then there actually is no need to make them pay in order to achieve efficiency. The reason we would make them pay in that scenario is something that we will cover in a couple of classes. It's distributive justice. We think they should pay because the neighbors deserve something. Uh, but that well, is a separate it, consideration from whether it is efficient. Yeah, in the sense that you, you're, not, you're not making the loss fall entirely on the neighbors. Right. Um, yeah, I, I just wanted to separate that. Uh, I think that's a, a, a key thing to separate here, that there are kind of two reasons to make the factory pay. And one is you're not really sure which use is efficient. And so if you say, you know what, you can make the use if you pay, then you're kind of testing the idea that their use is more valuable than the neighbor's use, right? They're both right. trying to use the air. And this is right. on the assumption, it would seem, that it's much easier for us to figure out the value of the harm to the neighbor than the cost of and benefit of actually running the factory. Right. Uh, because if, if that weren't true, we would flip who's making the payment to whom. That's right. right? Uh, and the notion here would be uh, when it's harder to figure out, make the person who has more information about the thing that's hard to figure out, yeah. right? Make them do what is needed to get to the answer. Yeah, we're trying to identify kind of the best cost-benefit balancer. And if it's and in the, this case, it seems like it's the factory. It seems like it's the factory because information about how pollution is affecting property values and, or just making the environment seem less livable, which you think might be reflected in property values, like that's something that a lot of us can figure out. We can get appraisals. Yeah, there are thick real estate transaction markets, yeah. and whereas is sort of figuring out, well, what would it cost to abate this to a point where it uh, 
harmed homes to a degree that was sufficiently small that it wouldn't affect affect their value. And, that, and if they and if they if they didn't shut down, how much you know how much would they have made in profit over the next few years? I mean, they'll have every incentive to bring in spreadsheets showing right. tremendous profits, but like we don't really know. So like. Who cares? Like, that's right. all sounds really complicated. I have these real estate appraisals. We know a lot about that. Right. You pay these costs and then you decide whether you want to operate. Yeah, go figure it out. So, so this is like, if you're uncertain about it, right, and all you care about is efficiency, and all you care about is efficiency, then you say to someone who is in one of these conflict situations, I'll tell you what, you pay the other person's costs. And if you do, you can continue what you're doing. Right. That's, that's the argument for liability. Now, the question is like, why do we do that rather than just say, you know what, neighbors, you can, you're right, this is a nuisance, you can shut down the factory. Because a transaction could still occur. It may well be at this point that the factory says, okay, neighbors, you won, here's a settlement. We're oh. going to give you these checks and now you're going to waive your rights. And, and, and that's, that is the default alternative, right? And that's what the court in, in this case was up against, right? Because the usual rule for nuisance, if, if you can prove a tort of nuisance that someone is substantially and unreasonably interfering with your use of your property, then the remedy is an injunction almost automatically. Stop right. the nuisance. Right. Stop the nuisance. And here the court didn't do that. The court said, you know what? It would ordinarily be stop the nuisance, but we think that's a problem. And so all we're going to ask is that the factory pay damages that we calculate. Now, why, why do they do that? Or go ahead. Yeah. Well, through the means of an injunction, there's still an injunction imposed and it's imposed and can be escaped with the payment of the settlement amount. Right. Rather than letting the parties negotiate about how much you're going to pay to each of the homeowners. Right. Um, I think the reason why that's prudent is the same reason the eminent domain example is prudent in the narrative that you wrote about the problem of holdouts. Yeah. Because if you've got all these neighbors this and the, the factory airport, has the to go neighbor by neighbor, yeah, right, yeah. Um, then each neighbor is going to try to capture as much as of the total value difference between the factory opening and the factory closing. Yeah. <laughs> They're going to try to get as much of that for themselves as possible. And this is, this is simple. In competition yeah. with all their neighbors. This is simple and intuitive. If, if, the, if, the, if the factory is told there's an injunction to operate, you have to get the permission of the neighbors. And the neighbors, like logically and as a matter of like efficiency, ought to be willing to accept a certain amount because that's how much they have actually been damaged and it would be rational, et cetera. Uh, um, You go to them and you say, okay, uh, how about we settle? Here's how much I'm willing to pay or or here's how much you should be willing to accept or something like that. Uh, There will be neighbors who will say, boy, you know, it's a really nice factory you got there. It'd be a shame if if you couldn't operate it anymore. Because now the theory of measuring what I want isn't about making me whole for the damage I suffered. It's about what would still leave you better off. I want all the money up to a dollar. (laughs) And as long as you have $1 more than you would otherwise have had, you're better off. Yeah, I made that. So we're fighting about this. In a sense, we're fighting about the gain that can be realized and and who gets what share of it. And those are notoriously, uh, those sort of bilateral problems are yeah. no, sort of notoriously unappealing and uh, difficult to common, resolve. Common in property law, where we have two parties who are in that kind of negotiation and there's a clearly efficiency enhancing deal to be had. It's basically the same as someone coming into a room and plopping down a sack of money and saying, if you guys can decide how to split this, you can leave with it. But if you can't decide how to split with it, uh, if you can't decide how to split it, uh, you don't get any of it. This right. is an ultimatum game. You know, but, we, but this is worse than Which has that, a powerful uh, social norm right. because the thing to do is split it. Right. Um, and 
it's it's much more complicated in the case where you've got one party on one side, many parties on the other side, all of whom are competing with each other. Any one of which could be a holdout. Correct. Yeah. And which means every one of which is a potential holdout. Yeah. So complicated case. And so I, the, we don't need to go into all of the um, uh, analysis of this case right now. I think it's a good illustration, though, of transaction cost economics, right? That if you, mm. if you understand how a, a one-to-many uh, negotiated relationship can produce these kinds of pathologies that can cause this kind of friction in bargaining, you're a long way toward understanding how law needs to be responsive to that reality. Like an economically informed law says, wait a minute our standard remedy of injunction here is not going to work. We're not going to get an efficient result because of this right. holdout problem. And so we need to do something different to try to encourage efficiency, even if we still have some uncertainty. And this idea of liability on the, on the factory is a way of saying, you know what, maybe the factory is, uh, you, you could. I mean, the court here concluded that the factory is the more valuable use. True. Um, and so there's another justification for making them pay, but um, and a more valuable use in the context of the lawsuit itself. I mean, it's, I think the court shows in its discussion of, uh, you know, sort of the clean air problem and the fact that there's legislation and other things that need to be done on a on a on a broader social basis. Right, the court is signaling that it's aware that the it's actually complicated to figure out if it's better to have the factory. In some larger sense, right? Better mm-hmm. to have the factory than not. Yeah. Um, but that can't get tackled in this case. Or it says, I don't want, we don't want to tackle it in that way. And when they We're still trying to. to talk about it in the terms that are familiar from tort, which is more like one person hits one other person with their car. <laughs> right. And it's not the entire world that's getting navigated and arranged in the, under the auspices of a single lawsuit. Right? Speaking, speaking of tort, let's talk about this Carol Towing briefly. You remember Carol Towing from, sure. from law school. I mean, this is a, a famous, well-worn case yes. uh, written by Learned Hand, famous for this little algebraic formula in the middle of this rather complicated barge sinking case. We don't need to go into the facts, Joe, but PLB, PLB is the, <laughs> that's what people remember, right? And this is fun to uh, judge Learned Hand, um, uh, Billings Learned Hand, uh, is a very famous judge in uh, U.S. law. And uh, in private law in particular, uh, as opposed to public law. And uh, I think if you polled a lot of people and said, who name two or three of the most uh, uh, significant and important jurists in U.S. law in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. uh, I think he'd be on a lot of people's short list, especially if you said, you know, in in private law cases, contracts, torts intellectual right. property, this sort of thing, right? right? As opposed to constitutional law like Fourth Amendment, Fifth Amendment, Eighth Amendment, that kind of stuff. Right. Um, uh, very interesting judge, very long-serving judge. <laughs> that um, helps, right? Very, hmm? That helps, right? Sure. Um, but really creative and uh, and a, a good writer. That, that's and a, really and a generative key, thinker. That's, and, being a good writer gets you cited more. You know, yeah. there, was that, there was that famous saying, because his brother was also on the Second Circuit. His cousin. Was it his cousin? Augustus? Augustus Hand, yeah. Yeah. So it's Augustus, and, and the old saying was, uh, um, what, quote, learned and follow Augustus? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but, but be, being a skilled writer gets you, gets you quoted and, and cited. Indeed. So, so in this case, we're trying to figure out, like, what, what makes, when should somebody re- be responsible to someone else for injuries? 
And in particular, when should you have tried to prevent that injury? Because like injuries are going to happen. Like yeah. things are, you know, people's plans are going to collide just like they did in the, in the uh, Boomer versus Atlantic cement case. Sure. I mean, just plans collide. And it's not always, you know, it's not always reasonable or rational for you to take every possible precaution to prevent someone else from being injured. Sure. And, and one, so one, um, one standard uh, that the court mentions uh, is uh, by way of, I think, talking about what, what you would see in, in many tort cases referred to as, you know, what, what would an ordinarily prudent person do under the circumstances? The ultimate standard. What would constitute, rule. Yeah. yeah, what would constitute uh, reasonable behavior under mm-hmm. those, uh, under all the circumstances, re- or ordinary and prudent behavior. Um, the court says with respect to... Which, uh, by the way, I have to say, usually translates in the mind of a juror or a judge into what would I do? <laughs> because I am, <laughs> that the, may be, although I are, am the ultimate reasonable person. That's what people, that's what people think. People right? to think a little more deeply. Sure. That. But sure. Uh, the, the one thing the court points to with respect to uh, a scenario, not actually in this case, but, but a little overlap with this case, right? The court says, you know, if it were just a matter of whether or not this employee were kept on the boat overnight, mm-hmm. uh, you know, w- it seems like there's a custom right in this area that you don't need to be on the boat overnight mm-hmm. uh even if the harbor is real busy as the harbor was in this context lots of boats coming in and out uh and and you know we, it might well be that if we were looking at a case like that where the accident happened overnight when there really weren't very many people on any of the boats um the the, the way you would figure out what was reasonable is that well the custom in this place and time for this situation is you don't need to be on the boat. It's okay to be uh, away from the boat overnight. I'm, I'm glad um, that you raised that because law often piggybacks on custom. We see that in other areas of property law that I teach. Um, there, there, are, there are plenty of areas where the judge says, you know what, pe- this is what people around here do. And I'm just going to make that the rule. And, right. and the reason why that can be a smart thing to do, can be, it's not always, but the reason why it can be a smart thing to do is because if you think and it's in a way it's about the rational actor model again if you think that basically over time people are trying to get more plus than minus and you just let people behave for a while <laughs> right. in the set of circumstances what they will roughly come to is the the way that pretty much gets you more pluses than minuses right most of the time right well, so, so let's contrast that yes i think that's exactly right so, and so I that's think... one resource you can look to now yeah. this case isn't like that yeah. Because he was away during working hours, mm-hmm. not just overnight. So now it seems like just looking to custom might not be that helpful because it sounds like a slightly weird well, because, situation. Yeah, because sometimes sometimes these bargees, apparently they are away. Sometimes they're not away. It's not as though they uniformly are away from the boat at this time. And so his right. being away is not consistent with a clear custom. But nor is his lack of presence violative of a clear custom. Correct. Right. And and the thing about well, I think if we contrast what the court does with custom, I think we'll see that the the court's awareness that its effort to identify what is efficient is imperfect. Right. It's it's trying to peer into a world and which is full of all kinds of hidden variables to which people are responding. Right. And so if you can piggyback on a custom, which maybe is likely to take account of those variables, you might do a better job. But so we'll come back to that in a second. But right. uh, So what the court does, though, in the situation where there's no custom to guide it is to say the ultimate question here is whether this if, if we're trying to do efficiency, suppose we're just trying to figure out, you know, uh, whether the world would be better off if you took this precaution, yeah. right? 
How do we do that? How do we figure out whether the world would have been better off had I taken this precaution, thereby avoiding the injury? Because again, we could, I could spend all the resources that I have right. minimizing the chances that I'll injure someone else. And that would actually be worse for the world, right? It'd be better if I use some of those resources for other things. Probably. And <laughs> he, this spoken as a guest in my home. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, so what Learned Hand says is, you know, what we want to do is figure out whether it was a rational decision and not a self-interested one, but a, but a rational decision for the world not to spend resources on the precaution. And the way we're going to do that is to figure out how expensive the precaution would be. Because it won't be free. Right. And there's then, cost again, right? You're thinking, okay, there's a cost. And uh, then, Well, what's the benefit? And then the expected injury if you don't take the precaution. So if, in a sense, if... if Which is the, a compound I, I'm going to get to that, concept. yeah, in just a second. Because it's, I think... Yeah. I mean, it's a multiplication, but like, you don't have to know. Uh, the important thing is that you are, the important thing is that you're figuring out which is, which is cheaper, right? Is it cheaper to take the precaution or to suffer the injury? Like if we reduce all injuries to a monetary value, is the injury cheaper or is the precaution cheaper? And well, what is the injury in a world where we don't know if, you know, the precaution is just avoiding an injury, the, avoiding a potential injury. Like this is like, I don't know, putting a guardrail on um on on a pathway or something like that so that if someone slips they don't fall all the way down the mountainside they fall yeah. into the guardrail maybe no one will ever slip right. but they might like how likely is it they'll slip how expensive is the guardrail it seems like this matters if you want to know whether it's rational to public or you might even say because rational sounds like it might be a little fancier foreign you might even just say is it reasonable right? <laughs> okay uh, you know i yeah. can i i've i've got i don't have unlimited money uh i i, I don't I, i'm not utterly insensitive to the idea that that harms could befall people Mm -hmm. so if i'm if i want to try to make the fewer harms happen in the world and i also want to make good use of my resources what would be reasonable to do yeah well spending all of your resources trying to eliminate all conceivable harms doesn't sound like a good use of your resources right now the world the world is worse off right if you if, if in order to achieve a cost saving of, I don't know, a hundred dollars. You spend a million dollars, two hundred or three hundred or four hundred or a million dollars, right? The world would be better off if you would use that money on other things, including avoiding potentially other injuries. Correct. So, because if you use it here, you can't use it somewhere else. So that's one part of this learned hand formula, right? Is is the is the cost of the precaution less than the expected cost of the injury? He does a little bit more by saying what the expected cost of the injury is in a world where we don't know if the injury is going to occur. In order to do this learned hand formula, this balance, you're going to have to try to assign a probability to the injury. So if the injury is certain to happen, then all you're doing is figuring out whether the precaution yeah. was, was cheaper uh, than the injury. Yeah. Uh, but if the injury is uncertain, you're going to have to figure out how likely it is. So you know, maybe on a, on, are you going to install a guardrail on a mountain trail where there's a cliff where almost no one ever goes? Like maybe no one has ever been there before, but it's on your property. Does it make sense to install a guardrail there? There are all kinds of cultural reasons why you wouldn't normally do that, right? And maybe custom is the answer there. Uh, but if, if there weren't a custom about that and almost no one ever goes there and the people that have gone there have never fallen, you've never observed that before. If someone does fall, they might die. So, True. you know, how much is that worth? Well, we'll talk about that in a, in a future class, but maybe it's worth about $6 million, <laughs> right? Um, what is the expected injury there? 
It's a very, very small number, a very small percentage, times 6 million. It may be as, I don't know, it may be as little as $60 in the end. I mean, if, if you really think it's unlikely, then it, that, but maybe one day someone does fall and they do die. And the question is, were you negligent for not putting up a guardrail? Right. If the guardrail costs several thousand dollars, um, then the answer under the learn and hand formula is no. Not, not if the very small number of times $6 million is less than that several thousand dollars. Now, I would say that it's actually very important that he doesn't do what you just did, which is start to talk about actual numbers. Mm. I don't think that he is contemplating a, a, a kind of get the green eye shade accountant over here. Let's <laughs> do some. That doesn't mean he's he. he it doesn't mean he wouldn't see the, the, the value of doing so in a case where figures were really available, right. right? But I think he's trying to talk about an idea that doesn't actually require you to have figures available. Right. It's a way to try it, to organize your thinking. A heuristic. A, about the things that are uh, important in trying to think better and, and more clearly about the problem. He's really, Custom's not available. Yeah. So what are you going to do in a situation like that? Well, here are some of its main moving pieces. He's really just elaborating what it means to be consequentially driven in a utilitarian framework. Right. As a judge operating in a zone of uncertainty. And certainly in, in doing so, t- sort of taking the, the, the venom of a sort of harsh moralism out of the picture. Right. Right. Where, well, you have to have done wrong because the, look at all these terrible things that happened. Right. Like, no, that's not the right way to think about it. But the judge is necessarily going to have to deal in unknowns here. And that's one reason why numbers are, it can be misleading because we don't really know what they are. Right. So that's why I think it's important that we we, do it. We may have a good idea of the cost of the precaution, but even then the parties are going to fight about that. How likely was the injury? Uh, you know, we can put on evidence, but that may be kind of uncertain. And then, of course, there's going to be a lot of uncertainty about how much human life is worth or limbs and you know, all these things that could go wrong. Right. Um, which is the reason that you might be attracted to piggybacking on custom. Yeah. Because custom is, shows you how people have responded over time. And you might, do, you might be more inclined to do this in, in a particular field where people have had repeated interactions around this problem. And so over time have come to something that seems to work. Yeah. And you might be a little bit humble as a judge and say, you know what? I bet my, I bet deferring to their response to all of these hidden variables of which I might not be aware is probably smarter and more rational than what I can do as a one-off here in this case. Yeah. Letting lots of people over lots of years interact in lots of ways and roughly come to a settled understanding um, that makes a lot of people feel pretty okay. Yeah. Right. That's a lot of information contained in that set of practices. Now, the students may well find problems in that because, you know, what we're describing is a kind of Burkean conservatism, this guy, Burke, right, who suggests that, hey, you know, if, if you don't, you know, you should be cautious about changing things because you don't know all the things that will change when you make a change, right? You, you make a change in some regime and it can be hard to predict. And that's one reason for kind of sticking with stuff. And it's not the case that just because people have been doing something the same way for a long time that it's necessarily rational and optimal. Um, far Ag- from agreed. It, far from it. But right. but this is a all we're trying to say here is that this is a common move in in judging. Right, is to give effect to an existing custom, right. especially when you're uncertain about whether what you have to offer would be better. 
I think we should wind up here. Okay. But just by saying efficient breach, <laughs> we got one case uh, dealing with efficient breach. I don't know if we're going to go into it right now, Joe, but this would be a great topic to explore in class further. Sure. What I want to know is how the students feel about efficient breach. Uh, is this something you knew about before? Um, this is We're talking about contract now, so we're not talking about tort law where the judge is deciding what is... Uh, good and reasonable behavior and what should be um, after an accident after an accident has occurred or it's not criminal law where there's some law in the books which says what uh, what good and reasonable behavior is here it's like parties have agreed to something you know i've agreed to hand over my car and you've agreed to hand over some money and we are both we both obligated ourselves to perform those actions right and then i say you know what i don't want to sell you my car I know that I agree that I'd show up on this day with a car and, and you'd pay me some money, but you know, I decided I want to do that. And can you get me, can you force me to hand over the car? Now there are situations where in contract, if, if I agree to something, a court will order me to do that thing. It is somewhat rare though. It's called specific performance. Um, the fact that it has a fancy name like that tells you it's probably not the remedy that occurs in each and every case, right? <laughs> the normal remedy is the expectation interest or expectation damages, which is that you're entitled to be made whole as if the contract had been performed, but not with necessarily the performance in the contract, just the value, right? So if I have to, okay, well, you don't hand over the car. Uh, I thought I was going to get a car for this price and now I've got to go out and buy some other car, but it's not quite as good for these reasons and maybe I have to pay more for it. And so you're just going to have to compensate me for everything that I lost because you didn't go through with the deal. What you owe me is money. What you owe me is the, the value that I lost because you didn't perform. And, and, and that can be expressed in monetary terms. Yes. And R- rather than saying it can only be expressed by you giving me the car. Right. But it also suggests that the law is not going to insist that you hand over the car. Although the right. contract says that you will, the law says that you can breach. Right. Right. It, and it's not going to say that you, it's not going to punish you for breaching. And in fact, as we know from this case, if you guys had arranged for a punishment to occur upon breach, the law will invalidate it. You can't punish uh, for a breach. Well, the, the law will refuse to enforce it if you guys go to court. Yeah, that's true. Right. They could have gone ahead and, and the person who had the sharp end of the penalty could simply have paid it. And, and they, a, in which case, and there'd been no court dispute and the court wouldn't have been there to say no. And maybe the reason they would do that is because they have an ongoing business relationship and that's more valuable to them. That, so in other words, a lot of their bargain is kind of outside of the law. It's outside right. of, of, of public force. But, but when you bring that to court, uh, so committed is the court to the notion that efficient breach is uh, good, pro-social, that something like a penalty clause, which would inhibit people from engaging in efficient breach, uh, shouldn't be enforced. So I, I would say this: we're going to quite wind, surprising. Yeah, we're going to wind it up here. But what I want the what, what I want you guys to think about is: are, are do you know for sure the why do we, why do we call it efficient breach? Can you be clear in your own mind about why breach can sometimes be efficient in the sense of efficiency that we have learned so far? And then I want you to reflect on whether you think. that the law is sensible here in the sense that you don't think that people should be forced to perform their promises. Isn't there some moral problem with not doing what you promised? And is that moral problem something the law should care about? Um, Do we we value efficiency more than promise keeping? How how do you think about that? Um, Because law and economics, at least the normative variety, takes a particular point of view about that. And I'm wondering whether you agree. All right. I think this this is a huge topic. We could go on for three hours, couldn't we, Joe? 
Totally. Uh, not tonight, though. I don't think I could tonight. <laughs> 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 but, uh, but I sure do look forward to talking about it with the students. And uh, we're going to hit stop on this one. And then we're going to talk about all the ways that maybe this whole enterprise has some serious problems. Maybe not all the ways, but some of the ways. Okay. Is that all right with you? Sounds great. Okay, let's hit stop.